Hey, this is Ryan Sewell. I'm the host of the Nebraska Backcountry Hunters and Anglers podcast. And today we have John Locks online. And John is with the Nebraska Game and Parks Commission. John's going to talk to us about two programs that I'm really excited about. Nebraska's Bergeron Plan and then Nebraska's Upland Slam Challenge. Uh, John, if you would please yeah. tell us a little bit about yourself. Introduce yourself. You bet. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ryan. Um, again, my name is John Locks. I'm currently the Upland Game Program Manager uh, with the Nebraska Game and Parks. So I help coordinate um, our agency's various Upland Habitat initiatives, our public access program. Then I'm also involved with our Upland Bird Research. John, are you a lifelong Nebraskan? I am. Yeah, I grew up in Lexington, so didn't make it too far from home. <laughs> So tell me, did you start off a hunter, or did you come into it later on in life? You know, I really did. I Like like many people, you know, I had my dad as a mentor, and so um, spent a lot of time with him, you know, hunting ducks, fishing. Uh, we had a cabin out at Johnson Lake growing up, and so just spent a lot of time outdoors and really got hooked at an early age. And is, is that what led you into a, the conservation field? I would say so. You know, I, I love to hunt and fish, which many of us do. Um, you know, I was always interested in learning more, you know, more about, you know, ecology and habitat management. So I, I really knew at a pretty early age that's what I wanted to do, you know, do something that I'm passionate about. And I think what really got me hooked was, you know, once I got to college and I was able to meet, um, you know, other biologists and other resource professionals and, Many of them were just as passionate, if not more passionate, than I was about many of the same things. So that was that was really a good gateway into into the career. And uh, so did you? So have you been in conservation then pretty consistently since you went off to college? Yeah. So I I kind of started out. I guess ever since my undergrad, I you know worked various jobs during the summer, and then that kind of led to grad school, and then then into you know my more professional career, I guess. How long have you been at it in the in the conservation field? Yeah, roughly. Uh, thinking about that, I think it goes back about twenty years now. Which boy, time flies. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and I must be about the same vintage because I've been uh, I've been working since college for about twenty years myself. So, um, and you know, it's funny when when we were in college, I always kind of thought that the bird hunting was going down in Nebraska at that time, just a, just a little bit. There was good. There were spots of good uh-huh. good areas and going down, and I can remember it being in the back of my mind wondering if it would be around for my kids, you know, or, or later on in my life. Sure. Um, you bet. And so what's the focus of your work right now um, at the Game and Parks Commission? Yeah, so currently, like I mentioned, I, I work with a lot of our different habitat initiatives, the Bergeron Plan you mentioned earlier. Uh, we have several other, you know, habitat initiatives targeted at quail or prairie grouse. Um, another big initiative would be our open fields and waters program and that's our our state walk-in program for public access and so our biologists enroll private landowners in that program we're able to pay them for allowing walk-in hunting and fishing access and so that's a big part of my job coordination of our public access atlas which many folks would be familiar with and then uh, as far as upland bird research um, that would include kind of our, our annual surveys that we do as well as other more specific research projects. Um, so in, in that regard, you know, most of our surveys are done in-house by our agency. 
um, but a lot of our research, we do work with different universities and other partners to, to conduct a lot of that. So uh, obviously working full time, do you still have time to get out and hunt even though you're out working in conservation? <laughs> you know, I think everybody has time to hunt. Um, <laughs> for me, I, yeah, I absolutely, every, every chance I get, you know, like, like you mentioned earlier on the phone before the show, you know, I have three kids currently, you know, they keep me pretty busy at home and priorities change, but I, I always try to make, make time to get out. I, um, spend a lot of time upland bird hunting now. Um, I've kind of gone in different stages over, over time. I used to be a big waterfowler. Then I got into bow hunting for a while and now I'm kind of settled back into upland bird hunting. So, um, that's kind of the, the path I chose anyway. Well, I've, I've, I've seen some of your stuff out there online, and I know that you have uh, a, a bird dog. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I have a Llewellyn Setter, and she's three years old. That's kind of my first pointing dog that I've had personally. We had, a, we had an English Setter growing up, and so, you know, the little upland bird hunting I did growing up um, was usually behind that dog. And so I always you know, kind of love that temperament, how they were around the family. And so it was kind of a, when I was, you know, looking at breeds and deciding to get a, a pointing dog, that was kind of a, a natural fit. Um, but yeah, she's, uh, she's a lot of fun, really makes, makes things enjoyable. She's pretty wide ranging, um, loves to work open country. And that's, I think really where she kind of shines. I, I love hunting prairie grouse and that's probably why. So so I'll just ask you, I, I also grew up with, uh, we had German shorthairs and English setters when I was a kid, and I kind of gravitated towards the setter uh, disposition just because they were um, a little softer than the shorthairs were, um, and I, I appreciated that aspect of the, of the breed. Uh, what, what led, did you go specifically to Llewellyn setters, or did you have a preference, or did it just, how did you just make that no. decision? I know I've, I've told you in, uh, in previous conversations that we've had that I am actually on the wait list right now for a Llewellyn setter pup that uh, uh, out of the Paint River Llewellyn's um, uh, a breeder uh, up in Michigan. And unfortunately, the dam is she's she's not being cooperative right now and we're still waiting for her to go into season. So <laughs> it's just she's about five months late right now. So yeah. uh, but, you know, Mother Nature always bats last and she can hit it wherever she wants to so <laughs> we'll just have to yep. we'll just have to wait um well i uh i'm glad to hear you're still able to out get out and enjoy the great outdoors um it's probably be kind of a torture if you were working in that field and then you couldn't get out and enjoy it on the weekends yeah you're you know you got to reap the rewards every once in a while and so i i think it's really important that our you know myself and other staff still have that that connection with you know this is why we're in the field we are and so we always try to make time and and be be aware of what's going on out there, the, the different issues hunters are having or, you know, new opportunities. It's it's important that we're definitely in touch with that. Well, I one of the reasons why when I we thought about doing this podcast, you you came to my mind is because I knew you've been involved in, in these programs to help um, Nebraskans and, and out of state residents uh, who may not have private land connections to hunt private land. Um, 
uh, make sure that they have places to hunt. And I know that um, open, the Bergeron plan was, um, I think it was it was started in 2016. I'm sure you guys planned for it for many years before that, but it um, went into effect right. in 2016. And I will tell you, I um, just the reason why the Bergeron plan means something to me is um, I actually kind of got out of hunting. I was... Um, uh, I, I grew up hunting. My dad took me about every weekend. At least that's my memory. It was every weekend we were going both days. Um, we had, we had uh, I think I had six bird dogs throughout my lifetime in my childhood. Almost always we had at least two. A lot of times we had three at a time. And uh, it was just a huge part of our family life. Our togetherness was going out into the field and hunting. And at that time, it, it was it was relatively easy to find um, public hunting, or I mean private hunting ground. Farmers, you know, it was small farms. Uh, they let you hunt the back 80, you know, that might be in grass, um, or CRP. CRP was uh, in pretty good shape at that time. A lot of people were enrolled. Bird numbers were good. Um, and then as I went through, and I graduated high school in the early 90s, um, I guess mid-90s, and then I kind of noticed a little bit of a, in my mind, a little bit of a decline in uh, hunting access because some of the farmers that we knew sold their, you know, they got, you know, they wanted to retire and they sold their ground and it kind of got consolidated into bigger farm operations, and we, we lost quite a bit of ground. Um, and eventually, um, by the time I was in college, it was, there was a few places left that we had that were private. So um, we became public land hunters, essentially, at that point. Yep. And then uh, when I was in college, I you know got busy doing other things and uh, started a family after college. And uh, uh, when I was raising my, my two children, I did kind of fall out of it didn't have a bird dog anymore. My dad didn't have bird dogs anymore, so it kind of fell out of it. Then in uh, in 2016, uh, one of my clients uh, mentioned that he he knew that I'd like to hunt back in the past, and uh, he mentioned that he was going to have a pointer pup, uh, puppy litter, and if I'd be interested in, in one of the one of the dogs. And again, this is back in 2016, and I said, oh, I'll go down and take a look at him. Well, you know what happens when you go take a look at a litter. I walked away with a puppy. Anyways, um, I got back into it in 2016. And that's when I started to look back into what's going on, where can I hunt, what are my options, and I found the public hunting access. I started reading about the Bergeron Plan and Nebraska's investment and trying to improve, number one, just improve the habitat and then also improve, um, uh, I guess, outreach into the community to educate farmers and how to bring back pheasant numbers and how to uh, bring back that opportunity for hunters. So if you'd just tell us a little bit about the, that burger and plan. Yeah, you bet. So our, our burger and plan would be, you know, represents our state pheasant plan. And so we've had, you know, a lot of different initiatives in the past. We had the focus on pheasants initiative that dates back, you know, to the early 2000s. And, you know, we've learned throughout that process, you know, the, the longer we've been in this business of, you know, some of the challenges we have and some of the, you know, ways to shape shape different initiatives to, you know, get at some of those limiting factors. You know, how do we put more habitat on the landscape uh, with public access, like you mentioned, is becoming, you know, more and more challenging due to a variety of different things going on out there. Um, you know, how do we how do we combat that, you know, and, and improve the pheasant hunting experience? And so uh, really our, our plan is very comprehensive in nature. Uh, you know, it, it looks at nearly every manageable factor that we can think of uh, that we can personally, I wouldn't say personally, but, but that our agency can influence. You know, there's many things that are out of our control. You know, we can't control uh, commodity prices. We can't control the weather, different things like that. But, 
you know, there's things within agricultural policy. There's regulations and statutes that we oversee. Uh, there's different habitat and public access initiatives. There's things in communication, outreach. Um, you know, all those different facets all play into that pheasant hunting experience. And so that's really what, you know, the plan gets at. And the main objectives and kind of the cornerstones of the plan are, are habitat and access. So we got to have habitat to have birds. Uh, we got to have places for people to hunt if we want hunters. And so those are really the two main priorities in the plan. <coughs> and um, we focus those efforts in several different priority areas located throughout the state. And so those priority areas were set kind of for a variety of, of reasons. Uh, the main one being we had a a project with UNL that looked at habitat suitability for pheasants. You know, many things have changed out on the landscape, the amount of CRP, the amount of small grain, different things like that. You know, where can we get the most bang for our buck? And so that modeling effort really kind of dialed in where we felt we could do that, you know, where we could have the biggest impact. And so we take that and then we also take, you know, where are our people at? Where are our hunters in the state? You know, where are there other other opportunities or other partnerships that we can pursue and you know those things kind of overlap and um, that's how those priority areas were kind of drummed up and ultimately within those priority areas our main focus is on private land uh, Nebraska being 97 percent privately owned um, we've developed uh, kind of region specific incentives that are targeted towards uh, landowners to increase, you know, to establish and, and manage habitat on their property. And then we also have incentives for public access too. So that's kind of the, the gist of it. Is the OFW program a uh, part of the Bergeron plan? Absolutely. Yeah. So where our, our uh, state being so predominantly privately owned, you know, that's our, that's our main mechanism to get more public access in our state is, is on private land. And so um, that's definitely, you know, our, our main, um, main priority when it comes to public access is through our open fields and waters program. So I, um, I, I've, I've looked at some of the, I, I've looked at the executive summary that the Game of Parks Commission has on, on their website. And one of the things that, uh, that jumped out at me is they wanted to improve or, or basically make an impact on 1 million acres in Nebraska. Is that something that was achievable? Conservation Reserve Program you mentioned earlier. It's a, a critical program for pheasants, critical program for wildlife in general out here in the Great Plains. And so, you know, things have to be, things have to really be clicking on that level too. Uh, we've seen over time since, you know, the, the mid-90s when you mentioned, you know, having good bird numbers around. That's about the time when CRP peaked in Nebraska. We had 1.4 million acres at that time. We have roughly half that now of undisturbed CRP cover. And so that represents some major challenges, um, you know, through our, through our incentives and over the um, first four years of the plan, we're still kind of calculating our, our accomplishments from year five, but we impacted over 180,000 acres, uh, con 
completed over 2,100 projects with private landowners within those spokeways. So, in my understanding, is so in 2016 when the Berger plan went into effect, it was it was considered a five year plan. Is that accurate? Correct. Yep. And so, yeah. So it just it. Okay, so you so you have I assume you're still crunching the data as to how what what actually uh, I mean it sounds like you've got some numbers 2100 projects that sounds uh, phenomenal over the course of five years um, obviously you had to have had a lot of help with uh, uh, private partnerships to to impact that many projects absolutely yeah I mean it, it comes in all forms it's our staff out there uh, you know working one-on-one -on -one with private landowners which are our main partner USDA, uh, we have a lot of different partners we work with throughout the state, depending on the area. Um, but yeah, you're correct. You know, those are kind of our, our habitat accomplishments. Another, you know, another big aspect of the plan, like I mentioned, is, is public access. And we really saw, you know, since 2016, saw some huge gains in our open fields and waters program. Uh, we added over 138,000 acres to the program during that time frame. And our current our current statewide enrollment is right around 373,000 acres, which is at an all-time high. So we've made some some significant gains there. Um, there's been, you know, more ground in that program now than there ever has been, and and things are looking looking bright for the future too. Yeah, and I I only hunted um, either publicly owned land or OFW ground this past hunting season, and it was it was amazing. I uh, the the habitat was great. Bird numbers were good. I've I've told anyone who will listen. I think 2020 was the best upland game year I've I've had as an adult. Yeah, and that you know that stigma of hunting public land is is kind of a funny one. You know, you have a lot of people that you know, I have a lot of friends that are pretty diehard hunters that I don't think they've set foot on public land, which just blows my mind. <laughs> you know, these especially with open fields and waters. I mean, these are privately owned lands. They're open to walk-in hunting. There's a ton of opportunity out there. Yeah, some some areas do get a lot of pressure, um, but there's still great opportunities out there for those willing to work for it. Absolutely. I mean, I had uh, I had an experience this year, which was a first for me, which is I, I drove up to a spot. I got out a little bit later than I wanted to. Um, had some family uh, uh, <laughs> some family obligations I had to take care of, and then I got out and uh, pulled up to one of my favorite about 300 acre OFW parcels and. Uh, uh, there were two guys coming off of it, and they had one dog, and I thought, ah, oh, Jesus, I had my two dogs. I was like, well, I'm not going to go anywhere else. I'll just, you know, I asked them, are you guys done? And they said, yeah, we're, we're done. So I just thought, well, I'll give it a, I'll give the dogs a, and you know, a run at least, get them some exercise. And uh, we went out, and I couldn't believe it. We hunted that thing, and uh, we were in it for about, well, we were in it for about 45 minutes or so, and both dogs locked up on point, and there was a rooster <laughs> that we were able to get. And, you know, two guys had just hunted it, public ground. It probably gets hunted, you know, maybe maybe a couple times a week, but it doesn't matter. I mean, there's those those birds are so crafty. They can they can find a way to hide. Uh, and so I've, I've had, I mean, I know I'm hunting spots just because I can see the, uh, the tracks in the snow that have been, that have been pressured, but those birds come yeah. back and they they transition in and out of those fields throughout any given day. Absolutely, yeah. We we actually had some research conducted on that in southwest Nebraska. You know, following bird movements and actually following hunter movements, and it was pretty interesting. You know, the just the the temporal uh, change over as far as pressure over the hunting season was pretty crazy. You know, we we all see it um, whether we realize it or not. You know, 
upland bird hunting, we see this massive peak in hunter use on our public access sites during the first two weekends of season, and then it just drops immensely from there. And so, you know, throughout the rest of the season, that really levels off. Um, there's there's a lot of places out there that don't get don't get hunted every day. You know what I mean by any means. Um, and so it's and and those birds, like you said, you know, even after that high pressure uh, time frame, you know, a lot of those birds have come back to those areas. Uh, you know, a week later, some birds stayed in the field. You know, a, as good as people think their dogs are, they definitely don't get all of them up. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> you learned in your hunt. You know what I mean? Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. So. Never miss any though, right? Yeah, <laughs> I know mine do, <laughs> but I'll give them a break. They were they they do pretty well. So well, I um I you know the so the public land in my mind right now is the best I've ever seen in Nebraska. And I do I actually go up and I hunt South Dakota quite a bit. They're 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 doing really well with their um with their uh, program their CREP program up there, which is uh, similar yep. to the uh, uh, OFW program. Uh, but I would say Nebraska, in, in my humble opinion, um, I think we can go, in some areas in Nebraska, we can go pound for pound with about any area in South Dakota. I mean, it's there might be slight, they might have us uh, just slightly uh, in, in overall bird numbers, but uh, my experience in the southwest part of the state, even the northwest, uh, northeast part of the state, we've got really good bird numbers. And if you put in the miles, you'll there's no reason why you can't get a limit. Absolutely. And that's been my experience. And actually everyone that I've hunted with um, that's that's focused on OFW has had the same comment as they didn't know this was out there and they would they should they would have known sooner because <laughs> it is really yeah. good. So um, now that the burger in uh, five years is is, uh, is expired, is there plans for a, a, a burger in two program or something like that? Um, in addition to Burger and 2.0, are there any other uh, projects that you're at liberty to talk about that are exciting that are that are on the horizon? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So our, you know, first and foremost, we've talked a lot about open fields and waters. And like I mentioned, the, the future looks pretty bright for that program. Um, back in 2020, Game and Parks was awarded a three-year, $3 million grant through what's called the Voluntary Public Access and Habitat Incentive Program. That's a long name. Pittman-Robertson funds um, that will help us enroll additional properties in the future. So 
Hunter should see some continued gains in the LSW program moving forward, which is good news. Um, so that's one uh, pretty big one. Another, uh, had a couple here. Another one would be our uh, continued partnership with Nebraska Pheasants and Quail Forever on our Habitat Share program. Um, this, this is a partnership between those entities and us. Um, this really helps increase our capacity on some of our wildlife management areas. So we have a big emphasis on creating early successional habitat specifically for pheasants and quail. And a lot of times, you know, we, we have a limited number of staff out there to do the work. Um, through, this, through this partnership, we're, we're able to contract some of those things out and basically put better habitat on the ground. So that's a really cool thing going on. Uh, another noteworthy partnership is our Working Lands for Wildlife initiative. Uh, that's centered kind of in the eastern sand hills. Uh, that focuses on improving prairie grass habitat on, on working ranches in that area. And there's a number of different partners involved, uh, including Game and Parks, USDA, Sandhills Task Force, uh, Nebraska Pheasants and Quail Forever, and the Rainwater Basin Joint Venture. And through that partnership, you know, we're really leading efforts to control eastern red cedar, which yeah. is really a, a major threat to prairie grouse in Nebraska, uh, mainly targeting that with prescribed fire and mechanical tree removal. So that's a, a really neat effort going on as well. Yeah, I just saw a graphic from, I think it's the, the less, it's a group out of uh, Oklahoma, I think, that, that uh, advocates for the lesser prairie chicken. But they, should, they have a graphic that shows the spread of eastern red cedar from Texas on up through the Dakotas. And uh, just since 2000, and it was stunning how much eastern red cedar has encroached upon what was formerly prairie ground. Yeah, my understanding, it's not just that, uh, I mean, and the reason, one of the reasons is that eastern red cedar sucks more water out of the ground, and so you're going to not get through those drought periods in the future if you've got more eastern red cedar on the ground. Correct. Yeah, there's a lot of, lot of different little side effects of, of their presence on the landscape, you know, from, from water consumption to impacts in the soil, um, you know, the suppression of other native vegetation, fire danger. So that, so that's the Working Lands for Wildlife program. Yep. Um, so I assume, obviously, um, the only thing that's the, probably the biggest limiting factor in your uh, efforts is is funding, and, and so you have a three million dollar grant, and then uh, any other the, is does most of the money then that goes to programs like that, improving the habitat, is that is that um, through the Farm Bill or is that through Pittman Robertson?
you know, funding sources are definitely mixed match all across the board. We have a number of uh, federal aid grants, and so so those would be your your Pittman Robertson funds, kind of that excise tax on on guns and ammo. Um, those are then matched, you know, with with uh, funding coming in from our habitat stamps, um, habitat stamp purchases by hunters. Um, some of our permit dollars also get get mixed in there as well. So it's a it's a pretty neat system. It's very very complex. We have some great people, you know, within our agencies and other partners that manage a lot of that. Um, you know, the budgeting and finding innovative ways to really you know impact more acres. Yeah, and I heard I I just heard something uh, today that with the with the latest surge in purchases of firearms and ammunition that Pittman Robertson funds will be off the charts for <laughs> for next year. So I had heard that I haven't seen the the official numbers on that yet, but yeah, that's uh, definitely something we've we've been trying to keep an eye on. So that'll be so the future does look look bright at least for improving habitat in the state. that deal with prescribed fire or things like that. Um, so there's, it's, it's really no different than any other business. You, you find out what your limiting factors are and, and how to achieve more and, and you work towards that goal. So, Well, I uh, am glad to hear that there's a, uh, not only a Bergeron 2.0, but that you've got these other programs in the works. And uh, again, I, uh, when I was out in the Sandhills this last season hunting prairie grouse, I you know, drove the same, uh, basically the same highways each time. And, uh, it was amazing to me, the, the new outgrowths of Eastern red cedar that I was seeing. <laughs> it was, yeah. So I'm glad to hear where, that people are working on that program. Cause I have, I've just heard about how it destroys the soil, you know, this, the changes, the, 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 even the, the acidity of the soil, all that stuff to where you might not, even, it might take years and years to restore prairie grass after you, uh, after it's been encroached with red cedar. So, well, um, well, you know, the, the Bergen plan for me has been um, something I've just been very thankful for. I'm a huge beneficiary of it. Like I said, uh, this last year, I only hunted uh, public ground, and it was ground that I would recommend to anybody. Great habitat, great bird numbers. Um, the fact that we have a public land atlas. I've hunted with some people from other states, and they couldn't believe how comprehensive our public land access was. And they couldn't believe our game and parks commission was nice enough to put one out <laughs> so that you could, so it's easy to find the ground that uh, is, is available to the public. Um, but it's been a huge benefit for me and for my, when I take my son out, we've got places to go that um, I can, uh, are, I'm going to make those memories and he's going to have a good time and he's going to want to do it later on in his life. And uh, one of the other things that we, we did together is, um, we tried a little bit uh, to to complete the Nebraska Upland Slam Challenge, which I will say, I was actually successful this year for the first time. I've tried it before and been unsuccessful, but I was able to put all the pieces together this year. But if you would please uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the Nebraska Upland Slam Challenge. You bet. Yeah. So the uh, the Upland Slam um, it, it was kind of initiated through a partnership between Game and Parks and hunters to harvest all four of Nebraska's primary upland game bird species during one season. And so here in Nebraska, that would include ringneck pheasants, northern bobwhite, um, greater prairie chicken, and sharp-tailed grouse. And uh, to, pr 
participate, it's really simple. Hunters go to our website, which is outdoornebraska.gov backslash coupling plan, and they register on there. They submit their photos and information about their hunt. And uh, once they complete the plan and everything is verified, uh, they're entered into some prize drawings, which are sponsored by uh, Pheasants and Quail Forever. And so the last couple of years, we've had a grand prize of a shotgun and a, a lot of other cool prizes. Um, this year, we gave out some lifetime hunting permits to some of our youth participants, too. So it's it's been really cool. Um, you know, a lot of folks have asked us about it. There's some other states that have been looking at doing something similar. Uh, you know, I, I feel like it's been a great way to promote, you know, some of our mixed bag hunting opportunities in the state. I also think it's a great way to increase awareness of especially upland hunting opportunities on, on publicly accessible land uh, here in Nebraska. So you take a lot of calls, you know, people trying to complete their plan. Where do I hunt? Um, the very next question is, you know, what is there for public land? And so it's a very easy transition, easy way to promote some of those resources in our state. So it's been pretty cool. Now what, uh, so how many years has the program or this challenge been in place in Nebraska? And uh, I, I actually found out about it in 2019. That was the first year I tried. And I, uh, I've told you this before when we were, uh, when I was asking if you'd be willing to, to come on this podcast is that I, in 2019, I, uh, I, I, I went out for the first time, had never hunted prairie grouse before. I had a friend that said, oh, you can try this spot over here. He gave me the public atlas, um, showed me which, which piece of ground to go hit. So I hit an OFW piece. And the first time I ever went prairie chicken hunting, prairie chicken hunting and the first time I ever even seen one flush, uh, I ended up getting a limit of prairie chickens that day, and I started to think to myself, well, this prairie grouse thing is easy. You know, <laughs> there's nothing to this. And uh, first field I hunt, I get a limit of prairie chickens. Then I, uh, the rest of the season, I did not see a sharp-tailed grouse, and I did not see very many prairie chickens after that. I mean, I saw them, but I couldn't get close enough to shoot them, I should say. Um, got, the, got the pheasant, got the quail, but then I, I was foiled by the sharp-tail. And uh, uh, this past year... Um, Again, I only hunted public ground. Um, I was able to complete it. I was, uh, this year I was, uh, in fact, the first bird I got this year was the sharp tail, the one that eluded me last year. Had a, just had outstanding uh, success out in the sand hills this year on public ground with, with, with prairie grouse. And one of the things I've, I told you, the thing that I appreciate the most about this program is it got me into prairie grouse hunting. I would have never, probably would have never um, thought of going out west into the sand hills to hunt uh, prairie chickens. Um, had had a friend not told me about this challenge and how fun it was to try to try to complete it and uh, that's right and I, I think that holds true for a lot of people you know obviously you know pheasants are, are the king and, and will continue to be a lot of people hunt quail on the side um, but we, we really have relatively few prairie grouse hunters you know we've seen declines in our, our prairie grouse hunters over time um, but it really has in my opinion caused kind of this resurgence you know you have tons of people asking questions where do i hunt prairie grouse and we have some great resources you know the the sand hills that you mentioned earlier it's really picturesque uh, prairie grouse habitat you know i always tell folks that it really should be on any upland hunter's bucket list to um, chase grouse in sand hills and so that's a that's a selling point in itself but it's been neat that the upland plan gives people you know one more reason to try it you know and I mean, our season is, uh, it, it, we're just blessed in Nebraska. It starts September 1, and you can hunt all the way through till January 31. So it's a huge, 
time frame. And, and I love getting out in the field with my dogs, whether they're birds or not. I just love getting out and, and being out in, I call it the church of the great outdoors. Just get out there and, and take in creation and watch the dogs work. And to be able to start doing that in September, you know, on September 1, it, it was, uh, it, it just, uh, outstanding opportunity. Uh, you know, I got time with my dogs I would have never gotten had we not had, if we didn't have this long season. definitely get a little trickier uh, later in the season but it's nice having that that large window you know and it, it really for a lot of people especially with you know with young dogs and a lot of people getting into the sport because of their dogs it really extends your season you know a lot of people just uh kind of thrive on on the pheasant opener you know and i'm like i've, I've been hunting for the last two months man you know? yeah <laughs> so it's Yeah, my dogs were in mid-season form for the pheasant opener because they'd already been out for two months. So it was it was a great, I mean, just all around great. Op- I mean, and and one thing that um, I when I go out hunting out in the sandhills, I camp out there, and uh, that just adds another aspect to it. So the campgrounds in twenty twenty with COVID um, were actually pretty full because people were trying to get outside, get outside and do something, and uh, it was really neat to meet hunters from all over. I met hunters. In fact, we had a I've got a buddy from Broken Bow, and one night uh, we we camped next to some some good old boys from Mississippi that were up uh, trying their hand at prairie grouse hunting for the first time in Nebraska, and uh, it was amazing. They brought a bunch of venison up. We gr- we all grilled out together, had a few adult adult beverages by the campfire, and it was just w- one of the most pleasant experiences I've had um, uh, upland hunting. So I mean, just uh, and again, that whole campground was full of grouse hunters, and it was it was really and again. There was so much ground, we didn't see anybody else. There was, even when we'd be out hunting, we weren't seeing anybody. Uh, but you'd come back to camp, and it was just—it was a really—it um, was just an outstanding experience to, from a social uh, perspective, but also just for the uh, enjoyment of, of being out in the outdoors. Um, you know, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about. I know you've got some of the statistics on the Upland Slam, and uh, over the past year, and maybe the last few years, if you could just yeah. give us some of the basics. We don't need to. Uh, cover every um, data point, but just just kind of on on what you're seeing with um, numbers of people that are that are getting into it, number of people that are completing it, um, and sure. some of the other um, specifics of the of the stats. Yeah, so we've had over the past three years, we've had <coughs> roughly 855 different hunters participate um, during that time frame. About half of those, 407, have completed the slam, and 103 of those completed it more than once and so um, we are seeing you know slight increases in participation each year it's been pretty interesting how we're you know we're getting quite a few new people Um, you know I know 103 having done it more than one year yeah it's great Um, but at the same time we're we are getting some new people each year and uh, like you said I think it's given people you know one more reason to get out there and, and chase some birds they maybe haven't before so um, you know, another another element we look at with any of these programs is, you know, kind of its effect on hunter recruitment, retention, reactivation, and the Upland Slam is kind of an interesting one. You know, I wouldn't say that we're necessarily, you know, recruiting directly a, a whole a whole new squadron of, of hunters out there, um, but we do we do ask when you submit your harvest, and you probably remember this: um, Have you harvested this species before in your lifetime? And so we're able to kind of quantify the number of first-time harvests, which is pretty cool. Um, We've actually had 331 harvests being first-time experiences in 
So that means they've never hunted that species before. And the vast majority of those try to thrive for prairie grouse. You know, yeah. and, and like like you said, that's really kind of the draw. A lot of people, you know, uh, hunt pheasants and quail each year, but this this gives gave them a reason to get out there. So well, cool. the, the the thing that I I mean I didn't mention this, but one of the things I I mean I have to be honest I I'd say I'm about <laughs> I'm leaning towards prairie grouse being my favorite upland species to hunt right now. One of the main reasons why is there's a difference in the in the habitat that they um, that they find themselves in, and so when I'm hunting in the eastern side of Nebraska, um, you know I'm dealing with a lot of tall grass, you know, really thick CRP, where it's sometimes hard to see the dog. I might not even see the dog for the you know, for 30 minutes at a time. When I'm out in the sand hills, it's more of that short grass, knee high, maybe waist high, occasionally. Um, prairie grass where you get to see the dog work and you get to see that dog go on point and my dogs are, are it's a pointer and a Brittany, and a, my pointer she's uh uh she holds pretty steady about 300 yards away from me so it's but i can see her out in that in the sand hills and i can see her lock up on point and it's it, 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 that makes it even more enjoyable um to be able to actually see the dog work <laughs> yep i'm the exact same way that that's what really draws me to that that landscape you know and Spending time up there, you know, or shape, not just the sand hills, but anywhere in Nebraska in September, it's just, it's a beautiful time of year. Stuff starting to, stuff starting to change as far as vegetation and just a, just a beautiful time to be out. Yeah. And so I, um, I'm wondering if, you, I'm sure you hear some stories from time to time. Have you, uh, uh, have you ever heard of anybody on one wa- or on one day or on one walk getting all four species? It'd be pretty hard to do, but I'm, I'm wondering if somebody's done it. Okay. I'm sure there's others out there, um, but you know, there's there's definitely a you know a portion of Nebraska where you have all four species overlap, and so there's opportunity there. Um, in in general, when people ask me that, where can I do it all in one day? You know, in in general, you're typically going to have to travel a little bit. You know, even within an area where you have all four species occurring, they're typically using you know slightly different habitat types, and so. So yeah, it's it's definitely doable. Um, I can't say that I've done it, but it would be really cool. <laughs> I've seen uh, I've seen pr- I've seen grouse and quail on the same walk, but I've never I've I've not put. Uh, and I think I've seen pheasant and and prairie chicken before. Um, but uh, I it was I just I I couldn't imagine um, the getting both species of grouse on one walk. That just seems to me to be too lucky <laughs> for me at least. So. <laughs> Um, definitely, definitely doable. You know, the the central part of the Sandhills. That's that's not an uncommon occurrence up there. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, I had one of the coolest cubby, uh, the quail flushes I've ever had. So those Sandhills, you know, some of those hills are three hundred feet tall, if not taller. And I was on the top of one of those really steep Sandhills, and my uh, dogs were down below in the bottom of this bowl, and they were on point. And I thought for sure it'd be grouse, and it was one of the biggest cubbies of quail I've ever seen. And they came straight up that 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 slope right towards me and just flew right up in front of my face over the top of my head. It was, it was amazing. I mean, it was, yeah, it was pre, it was pre quail season. It was, it was grouse season only at that time. The quail opener hadn't happened yet, but uh, it was one of my favorite experiences ever in the uplands. Um, well, um, you know, so we're, we're on the backcountry hunters and anglers, Nebraska chapter podcast. And we, uh, you know, the, the slogan for uh, backcountry hunters and anglers is we are the voice for our public lands, waters, and wildlife. So one of the things we like to focus on is 
uh, public land, uh, public hunting opportunities. Do, with the Upland Slam, did you um, did you do you take statistics or do you hold any any numbers on how many harvests occurred on public land versus private land? Yeah, we do. So we we do ask upon each uh, each submission for each bird, we ask them if they harvest on public or private land. And of all the submissions that we've had, we've had over half have been on public land. So that really speaks to, you know, some of the opportunities that are out there in Nebraska. You know, and that's amazing given that 90, as you said earlier, 97% of Nebraska is privately held. Yep. And so that, I mean, to to my mind, that goes to the quality of the habitat that you've got. It's drawn in the birds. So if you put the time in on that, on that publicly available land, I mean, there's no reason why you can't be successful in this slam, just as I did, only on public land. Yep, and that's, that's really, to me, the, the thing that draws myself and many others to upland bird hunting is just the, the vast amount of public land and, and opportunity. You know, all four of those species, as you mentioned, can be found readily on, on public land. Um, some species are going to be a little harder than others um, to pursue and just tougher country. But the opportunity is there for those that uh, are interested. Well, um, John, you've been extremely uh, gracious with your time. I told you I was going to try to do 30 minutes in and out. Nobody got hurt. My timer is showing I'm at 45 minutes, so I'm way over. So I apologize for that. But I, I did kind of want to end with just a real quick, uh, where you been and where you going? Did you tell me, if you can, just briefly tell us, did you do any fun hunting trips last year? And do you have any fun uh, uh, trips planned for the 2021 season? hunt a lot locally uh, love taking my kids out love hunting with my dad uh, I do plan on uh, a desert quail hunt sometime I'm kind of waiting you know that's always so uh, production so driven by precipitation down there I yeah. kind of wait to hear hear what the forecast looks like but this might be the year I pull the trigger on that so um, again that's another way to extend that season their season goes into February down there so well I uh, i I'm, I'm, I'm also, that's on my bucket list as well. One of the things I've, I've been hearing about is that, you, you know, if you, if you get the opportunity to go down to, in one of those years when they've had the precipitation and it's apparently, uh, one of the few places and you can get all four, uh, four varieties of quail, right? You get the, um, yeah. desert mountain merns and, uh, oh, what's the other, is it Valley? Is that the? They would have gambles down there. Gambles, that's right, gambles. So. Yep. Well, that sounds great, John. Again, thank you so much for your time. Um, I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge about the Bergen plan and the Nebraska Upland Slam. I, I, I will end it by just saying, if you, you know, if anyone out there listening, um, get involved, get enrolled in this Upland Slam. It's a blast. Get a get a copy of the Public Hunting Atlas in Nebraska, and and just get out there, put the miles in. If you get out there five, six, seven, eight times this year, and you put in the miles, I'm almost guaranteeing you'll get success. So uh, with that, John, um, thank you so much, and uh, uh, hopefully our, our paths will cross again. Absolutely. Hope, hopefully behind a couple bird dogs this fall. Absolutely. Well, you take care, John, and, and thanks again for all your time. You bet. Sounds great. Yep. Bye-bye.